Well, as we continue studying the gospel of Mark, we're in Mark chapter 3, the verses we just had read for us, which begins and ends with a focus on Jesus' family, as well as to broaden that to talk about what it means to be a part of God's family because of Jesus. Family is a powerful thing that God has gifted us, but just like anything that's powerful, it can be powerfully used for good. It can be something that we are blessed by and thankful for, but it can also be something that as we think about our own experiences and our own families, it can come with it struggles and difficulties. The way to illustrate that that has always helped me is to think of the many things in our world that are powerful, like, like fire. Fire is a, a very wonderful gift, but it can be powerfully used for good to heat our homes and to cook our food, but we don't dare turn our backs on fire, do we? Because if it's neglected, if it's not used properly, it's very destructive and can harm. But what we see already in Mark chapter 3, Jesus knows firsthand from his own family why it's important to understand how God has designed family and how we can take this seriously so that we can use it in the right ways. In fact, in the first two verses read in verses 20 and 21, the situation begins by already three chapters into the gospel of Mark. People are hearing about what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is saying. And there were so many people that it was becoming a hindrance for the disciples. They were so busy and crowded that they weren't even able to eat. But then another concern comes up. That Jesus' own family, when hearing about the crowds coming to follow Jesus, they make a conclusion wrongfully that Jesus must be out of his mind. Already what we're meant to see here is that when we think about our own families, what it means to be a family, family can be a spiritual influence or it can be a hindrance. In fact, even using that word influence, it's interesting, isn't it, that in 2024 when it comes to social media, influencers getting more and more attention, don't they? In fact, even on social media, just like here with Jesus, we credit someone's influence by how many followers they have. Well, I think we could make the case that Jesus was the greatest influencer there ever was. He had the most followers, if you look at all that God's been doing all throughout history and including today in our world. But here, his family came up with a different conclusion, didn't they? They said that Jesus must be crazy. He must be going out of his mind. Why is he letting all these people come? We need to go and do something about it. It's probably not the first thing that we think of when it comes to describing Jesus, is it? We might say, oh, if someone asked, who is Jesus? You, you might say he, he, he's wise and he's, he's kind and, and he's loving. He was willing to give his life as a sacrifice for us on the cross. But maybe the first thing we wouldn't say was, oh yeah, and by the way, his family, they all thought he was crazy at this time in his life. But that's what we see. They misunderstood the situation. That's not only found here, we'll see it again in a few more chapters. In Mark chapter 6, we see specifically, who are we talking about here? Mark 6 verse 3 says, the people were making this 
claim about Jesus. They said, isn't Jesus, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and, and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? All they were seeing was Jesus from a people perspective. But it does show as we celebrated with Christmas that Jesus was truly born and lived just like us. And what that means as we think about the topic of family is that Jesus knows firsthand about having half-siblings, as we see here. Jesus' father, Joseph, wasn't his biological dad. Mary was an unwed teenage mother when Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus knows firsthand what it's like to feel those complexities of blended families. And he shows us here how we can best navigate through the difficult things that we experience. That when it comes to trusting God in faith, it may cause and it does cause issues sometimes, especially when we're misunderstood. As I was thinking about that, I remembered back to meeting a fellow classmate in college my freshman year. I went to a Christian university in Indiana, and when we were sharing about our experiences of when we came to a Christian school, a guy by the name of Brock shared about how he was saved his senior year of high school, and that his family weren't Christians, and when it came time to deciding where to go, he decided to go to a Christian college, and his family didn't understand that decision. They thought he was wasting his life. They wanted him to go to be a doctor, to study at a bigger school with more credentials. And so when he left to go to a Christian university, he said his family completely disowned him. They wouldn't talk with him. It really showed the level of his commitment to trust in God's purposes. And it convicted us as freshmen and to consider what it meant for him to put his faith first, even if that conflicted with family. But in this case, the beautiful thing is by the end of his time at a Christian university, he did study medicine at our school. And he started going to different countries where there wasn't great medical facilities. And he was using what he learned to be a blessing to help others. And then his family took attention to that. And they didn't realize it wasn't exactly what they had pictured. But they realized that their son indeed was being a great influence in this world, to use his faith and his medical knowledge to be a blessing to places where they don't have good care. And it was through that experience that his family began asking questions about the reason why he trusted in Jesus in that way. That's what we're meant to see here as we think of our own family experiences. We want to trust God and allow him to define what it means to be a blessing, a spiritual influence and to help us to navigate when we feel hindered by people closest to us. God over and over in the Bible provides many ways that we can understand that. But Ephesians chapter 6, the first four verses summarize what God had said even going back in the Old Testament. God says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is going back to the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments, 
And I feel like, especially going into a new year, I find myself more and more the older I get to go back to some of the foundational places in the Bible to make sure that these things are informing how we live. And if you've ever noticed with the Ten Commandments, I can't do it with a microphone in my hand, but there are ten, meaning there's, some speculate, one for every finger on your hand to remind you of what God has said. And another way to even go back to what Jesus used to summarize the Ten Commandments, five of them talk about what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And then five of them focus on what that means to live that out with relationship to one another, making sure that we don't steal, don't lie, don't take advantage of others. So the fifth commandment is the transitional commandment, as we see summarized here, which is to obey your parents, but in doing so, it is to show honor and respect towards God. And the way that it's presented here is to tell us that there are two ways that shows God's blessing, that it will go well in your life in that you will live long. If we think about that, if children obey their parents, it doesn't automatically guarantee that you'll never experience any problems ever again. Just obey and all your problems will be solved. The idea here is that there are plenty of parents and kids that even though there's love and respect in the relationship and in a family, this world is broken. There's plenty of problems to deal with, but by putting God first and working together as a family, it will be a blessing. The idea here is not just to say to your kid, especially on the other side, if a kid is obeying and everything is going well, and then when they start getting hungry and you say to them, okay, it's time to settle down and time to eat, and if they say, no, I don't want to, and they disobey, it's not for parents to look at their kid and say, well, there you go, you've blown it, you've messed it up. If you don't obey, then you will never enjoy all the many blessings. The idea here is that what God is saying is if you want to enjoy the life that he gives, it starts by doing what the first verse says, obeying and parents to live this out because this is in the Lord, that this is the right way to live. We look to God to build that cheerful attitude, a desire to learn for parents to encourage kids to listen to what God says, even when life gets hard, even when kids disobey. Thankfully, we can look to God for grace and forgiveness to allow Him to help us to be spiritual influencers instead of spiritual hindrances. These two things are mentioned about listening to God in the Lord and doing what is right because it shows us we can't do this on our own. Parents need this. Kids are going to fail. Families struggle. But God gives help. Even on days we feel like we're failures. That's why it's wonderful to have a church like this to encourage one another, to learn from other parents, to look after young parents, to encourage them to say, yeah, there's going to be tough seasons. And just as we talked about last week, when we feel like we're a failure, thankfully we always can look to Jesus for His love in grace and forgiveness, knowing that Jesus came to give grace and to show acceptance to sinners. But we're also showed a warning here in verse 4, particularly pointed to fathers, but it can include mothers as well in parenting, 
The failure to do this means to provoke your kids, to exasperate them, to make them bitter and angry. Thinking back to that fire analogy, it's allowing their frustration to smolder and get fired up. It's for parents to treat kids unfairly and harshly as an authoritarian way of parenting. God calls that out and says that's abuse. What this calls for us to do is to make sure that we listen to God. Because if a parent punishes unfairly, punishes out of anger, it can lead to kids growing up to do the same. Now, there's nothing more humbling, even as I thought about that, that when you hear your kids say something or do something you know isn't right, to say, where did you learn that? Only for them to say, well, I learned it from you, Dad. Take that to heart, to say that's an opportunity to say, you're right, we need to take that to God and recognize His own grace. In fact, I had learned that in my own life as I was thinking about my relationship with my dad. An example, a place in my life that this really hit home was about when I was a teenager, when I should have known better, that when I would get upset, when my parents wouldn't let me do whatever I wanted to do, I don't even remember what caused it, but I knew how to say things to get my dad upset. Sometimes when I didn't get my own way, I would start pushing his buttons to try to see if I could get him upset, because I'm already upset. And this time particularly, my dad got really angry, and he yelled like I had never heard him yell before told me to go to my room and stay in there and shut the door. So I went up and slammed the door, and I was fuming. I was upset. I was angry. I was thinking about how I still didn't get my way and how wrong my parents were. But a few moments later, my dad knocked on the door, and I said, oh, I was getting ready to start going on with my arguments to try to convince my dad why he was wrong and I was right. But this time, it was one of the first times I remember seeing this. My dad looked at me and said, Zach, before we talk about it, I want to tell you, I got angry, and that wasn't right, and I'm sorry, and I need you to forgive me. And even as I think back to that, as a teenager, I went and thought, I'm the kid. I'm the one that should be apologizing. It softened my own heart to realize that I shouldn't put my dad through this, and instead I need to listen. We may not always see eye to eye, but that doesn't mean I can get him angry. And it certainly showed his humility. Because it shows the very heart of God. To know that there's a fine line between punishment and discipline. I heard a parent once share this with me that stuck with me, a way to illustrate it. That they were out in a store one day. And they heard a mom continually say to their kids, stop it, quit it, cut it out, don't do it, stop don't do it. Listen to me. Stop doing it. And finally, the kid turned back and said, I don't even know what I'm doing wrong. And it was an opportunity for that mom to come up and say, oh, I was just trying to stop you from going in and playing with all the different toys and things. Those aren't ours. You can't go in there, right? That punishment would just continue to say, stop, stop, stop. But correction, discipline, is making sure to communicate what the issue is. So that's how God treats us. God doesn't just look at us and say, stop doing bad things. Cut it out. God isn't just in a, the business of blaming us. Instead, he's coming to help, to work on our hearts. In fact, very similarly, something that convicted me as I was looking at this in terms of parenting. It's mean putting secondary what other people might think about us. Sometimes when it comes to families, we want to give the appearance that I'm working hard. 
I'm training my kid. I'm trying to raise my family according to what God says. But when it comes to truly understanding discipline and correction, instead, it's not focusing on the appearance of what others say. It's not necessarily thinking how other people think about your kid's behavior. But instead, it's celebrating character growth in your son or daughter. Seeing them to grow and mature in the Lord. Once more, this shows the very heart of God who does that for us. That isn't as interested in what other people may think about us. But he sees our heart in terms of hungering and desiring for the character that he gives. As we consider this together, it's important to see the power that God has given us as families that hopefully we can live as influencers to our sons and daughters and to one another. But it's also an opportunity that the older that we get, we may look back to some of the experiences we had growing up to see if there truly is anything that we're still holding on to, to make sure that we know that if we've suffered with bad experiences from our past, those things do not have to define us. That God knows at the end of the day, every parent falls short, which is meant to point us to our great Heavenly Father who takes our painful experiences to use them to help us rely on His love to care for us that more than any family member can. As we continue to see in Mark chapter 3, at first Jesus' own family misunderstood Him. But next we see some challenges from what other people thought about Jesus to broaden us to not just apply to our biological families, to, to help us to think about our lives spiritually in God's family. In verses 22 through 25, they attack Jesus by saying that he's possessed of Beelzebub. That's a title for the devil, and we're even as we're told here in this passage, he's referred to as the prince of demons. Beelzebub is literally translated the lord of flies or the lord of filth where flies gather. This is meant to show how truly repulsive he is. But strangely enough, Back in history, there was a culture and people that actually took Beelzebub and worshipped him as a false idol in God. As we think about that, strangely enough, even still today, there are people who claim to worship the devil and worship Satan. Some even try to use that as a way to mock religion altogether, which is a very dangerous and strange thing to do. We see it right here with Jesus. They were using the name of the devil to challenge Jesus, to try to tear him down. This is what the devil's been doing. Demonic forces have been doing ever since the very beginning. Because they opposed God, they've shown themselves to be liars, hostile to anything that God has to do with, including his people. In a moment, we'll see Jesus' response to this. But as we think about the power of family, it's worthwhile to consider how the Bible describes how demonic forces attempt to divide and attack families. The devil wants nothing more than to destroy what God has declared as good. One example of this comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. It describes one of the foundational parts of families, which is marriage. So we look to God for His protection. Verses 
three for five, uh, start, actually starting in verse one, it says, it is good for a man not to marry, but since there is so much immora- immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital, du- marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come back together so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In these five verses, we're told some powerful ways to honor God. That in contrast, sadly, our world misunderstands. In verse 1, even though the rest of the passage talks about marriage, verse 1 talks about the power of singleness. If you look back throughout history, unfortunately, so many have misunderstood the gift that is singleness. Some people have looked down or neglected or failed to recognize those who aren't married. Here we're told it's a powerful way to honor God. I remember back to before I was married, I had some guys who were married challenge me to use the time I had when I was single to prepare to do what I was going to do in marriage, but in just in a different way. The idea is that being single is to live self-disciplined by saying no to all women so that one day, by God's grace, in this case, Anna, was then so I could continue to say no to all women because I said yes to her. The idea here is we see in 1 Corinthians, this is a call to make sure we are praying for one another. Husbands and wives are praying for each other because prayer guards against spiritual attacks. This could include singleness, as we've seen here. And if you think about it, every one of us, when we're born into this world, we're born single. And there are good reasons to remain single. There are uh, great ways to be a blessing and to serve God in singleness. Just like there are good reasons for marriage. Marriage and singleness are both powerful. But just as we saw with parents and kids, if misunderstood, they can be powerfully misused. Strangely enough, here in the Corinthian time, in about 50 AD, this were a group of people who had just become Christians. And there were, strangely enough, people who were saying exactly this, that marriage is just a distraction, that you can just do so much more independently, elevating one over the other, even approving of husbands and wives to separate, to do their own work, But what we're meant to to see here is that opens a family up for spiritual attacks. The enemy, the devil, wants to try to divide families, to attack husbands and wives, to neglect one another. The Bible tells us that spouses should not only look to their own interests, but take care of each other. To not neglect physical intimacy. Marriage is powerful, but if it's neglected, it misses that Marriage is meant to be a, a uniting, and as verse 5 explains, united in prayer. As we've already seen, this is not just for married couples, but it's meant to 
encourage us to pray for one another, pray for other families, for parents to pray for kids to make sure that they aren't spiritually attacked, to deal with the different things that our culture and world tries to present. Prayer is a powerful way to avoid unnecessary temptations. So if you find yourself in those circumstances in your own life, or if you can see that in others, God desires for you to look to Him to pray about it and to be willing as husbands and wives to address this and talk about this. To make sure that you're not too fearful to bring up if your needs aren't being met. But to ask one another how you can better love and serve, how you can pray, how you can encourage. As we continue in Mark chapter 3, Jesus then gives an illustration to show us how wrong it is, how terrible it is for the devil to be at work in our lives. So Jesus simplifies it for us in verses 22 through 27 to tell a simple parable by saying it doesn't make sense for demons to drive out demons. How can Satan drive out Satan? Saying if a kingdom is divided, it cannot stand. They were calling him of the devil. And what he was saying is, that would be like saying, if there was a strong man's house, you would first want to deal with the strong man before you try to do anything in the house. So as we think about this practically in our own lives, perhaps just think about the strongest man you can think of. In my case, the man who came to mind was my middle school youth leader in my church. His name's John Apple, and he actually, before he became a Christian, qualified for the U.S. Olympic team in weightlifting. I think it was deadlifts, straight up. So he had a lot of upper body strength. And he would share with us his testimony about how he became a Christian. That he said, Back before he was a Christian, when he was a weightlifter, his whole life was weightlifting. He put all his time and energy into trying to go as far as he could, and he actually did qualify for the 1980 U.S. Olympics. Only there was a problem. The problem was that year it was boycotted. So he had trained his whole life, and he was unable to go and compete. And where he was as far as his physique, it meant that he wasn't going to be able to train anymore, to compete anymore. And his whole life was over. He felt depressed. He gave up lifting. He didn't know what he needed to do in his life. But thankfully, he had a friend who invited him to his Bible study. At first, he didn't want to go, but he said he was so glad he did because when he went, he had people who encouraged him and pointed to the Bible and pointed to how giving and surrendering to Jesus gives us a far greater purpose than anything else in our life. John Apple, I share that, not to get sidetracked. He's the strongest guy I know, but not just in weightlifting, but in, when it came to his faith, because he used the rest of his life to share about how Jesus is the greatest purpose there is. In this case, Jesus uses this as an example to say it wouldn't work, even when it comes to demonic forces for them to be divided. How would it work for Jesus to be working with Beelzebub, but also working against this is meant to show the power of Jesus, the power that Jesus has over even demonic forces, evil and oppression. The reason Jesus came was to bring his power, the true king, as we're seeing in the Gospel of Mark. 
to show that his kingdom frees us from Satan's oppression, to be free from sin, because Jesus has power over evil. It's our next point this morning as we consider how to have strong families, to live strongly for God. We can see that Jesus saves from spiritual oppression and darkness. That's what Jesus' simple illustration is all about. In order for Jesus to drive out demons, to give freedom from spiritual oppression, it meant first he came to deal with the devil. In 1 John 3.8, a simple verse, it even tells us that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. This is his very mission. What a terrible thing to consider in this verse that the devil is at work. The devil not only exists, but he tries to undo what God has made to distract and destroy, to tempt people to sin. But praise be to God for Jesus who came to die for our sin, to give his life for our punishment of disobedience and selfishness. Which means if you've trusted Jesus, any accusation the devil tries to make of you, it won't stay. It won't stick. If the devil ever tries to get you discouraged, to make you feel like you're a failure, to try to make you feel guilty and ashamed and lonely and judged, the reality is there's now no condemnation for those in Christ. Because Jesus was condemned for us. Jesus was judged in order to destroy the power of the devil that works against us. And what this means is that Jesus has defeated sin and death and the fear of punishment so that trusting Jesus means that you now have died with him and have been raised to new life, knowing the wages of sin is death. But praise be to God, he gives eternal life forever by his grace. Likewise, in Ephesians chapter 2, First five verses describes it this way. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Verse 1 alone should give us great cause for celebration because it says if you've placed your faith in Jesus, this is who you once were. You were dead. It's past tense. It is now no longer true. We are now no longer defined by sin. We're not defined by the ways of this world. And we're not defined, as the devil is described here, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, meaning it's prevalent, it's pervasive in the spiritual realm, all around us, trying to work to get us to be discouraged, to cause disobedience. But that's why Jesus came, to defeat, to break us free from the devil who's at work to try to cause people to disobey, to attempt to define your life by your own purposes, not realizing we need Jesus. Sin and the devil oppresses tries to suppress the truth, but Jesus sets us free. And then in verse 4, we have that conjunction, but because of God's great love, which is to say, not so fast. Verse 5 tells us that through Jesus, we are no longer bound by those things. We're made 
alive and free. And then we have the first of a few references. It's by grace we are saved. To turn from sin, to ask God forgiveness means you are saved. You have been saved. This is who you are. This is the only place where we can find love, mercy, and grace, all because of God who decided to do something about sin, to defeat our sinful state, to free us from judgment and death, to gift us with new life. The victory of Jesus over death, it's now our victory, his victory over this world and the devil who is now at work, is gifted to us by grace. For So for people to claim that Jesus is the devil here by these religious leaders, it makes no sense. Jesus came to prove he's stronger than death itself. He came to undo sin so that we can enjoy God's many blessings. And before we move on and finish with our next point, it's worth noting that that's what Jesus did through the cross, but he's also promised, as we see in the Bible, to one day finally cast out all demonic forces, the devil, completely. In Revelation chapter 10, verse, sorry, verse, tw- uh, verse 10 in v- chapter 20, Revelation 20, 10, it says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire, burning sulfur, where the beasts and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We see here an event that will take place. The devil here is described once more as a liar, deceiving the nations, trying to attack God's people. But we're meant to see that God has a final judgment and one day will send the devil and all evil spirits to eternally be tormented. Described here as a lake of burning fire, eternally, spiritually, to be punished, never ceasing, never again to be allowed to deceive or attack once and for all. I feel like given the current state of our world, I don't know about you, but I've been seeing more and more questions come up about the purpose of our world and the purposes of God and the promises of God. When will this end? I've had many people come and ask, what are we supposed to do with our current world and circumstances? And one way to address that is what we're doing right now. Look to what God has already said. In Revelation 12, 10 through 10 and 12, we see once more this same event ascribed. It said in verse 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Jesus, of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. God has told us this so that we can watch and pray and be ready This is meant to encourage us to know that God is truly in charge. Because even as we see in verse 12, the devil himself knows his time is short. In other words, the devil is not delusional. The devil doesn't think he can win. He knows he can't defeat God. But his goal is not to defeat God. Because he knows he will lose. But this is how evil he is. He doesn't care. 
The devil isn't stupid. His goal, though, is to try to bring God pain by trying to hurt people who love God, who are made in God's image. The devil loves nothing more than to try to drag us down. And yet we're told even in this passage, we're meant to rejoice. There's cause to celebrate because Jesus provides victory over sin and death. And we know the devil will be cast down forever. This is the power that only Jesus has, who reigns forever. So we are told we are more than conquerors in him as we eagerly await eternity forever. This is what Jesus came to accomplish. And then we see the result in Mark chapter 3, that by faith we get to experience the power of being in God's family forever. Our final point as we think about what it means to have strong families is that belonging to Jesus provides unity and loyalty forever being in God's family. And Jesus shows us that by telling us what it means to belong to him. He does so that at first it looks like it dismisses his mother and his family who had just come to come and try to seize him perhaps or put a stop to this. But Jesus instead, he doesn't dismiss his family saying, who are my mothers and brothers? Instead, he includes, he opens up to say this is welcome for all who have faith and trust in him. So Jesus doesn't dismiss his own family. He doesn't disclude them. He instead includes all who come humbly, repenting of sin, so that we can truly know what it means to live out God's will. Romans chapter 8, 15 through 18 says it this way. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are God's children, we are his heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Again, we are described here a new status that we have by trusting in Jesus. To no longer be outsiders. To not feel like we have to be second class. Instead, we are loved by God. This is how we get God's favor through Christ. To be a full status child in his family. It's proven by the gift of God's Holy Spirit, and we're described as heirs and co-heirs with Christ. We know this from our own families. The benefits of being here is to be given an inheritance, to be included with the many promises and blessings. And we do this not by trying to be a better person, not by attempting to obey God's commands in order to be a better person on our own. Instead, it comes through faith in Jesus. He's gifted us His Spirit which means we're even told that through the Holy Spirit we can cry out with those two words, Abba, Father, in Espanol, Abba, Padre. It's repeated to emphasize, to show us that this is what it's meaning to understand who God is. Not as a distant creator. Not as a God who doesn't care about our lives. Instead, we can look to Him as Abba, as Father. Jesus teaches this so that we can understand what it means to be a son and a daughter in God's family. In fact, we already heard it in the children's message. We didn't even plan that when Annie said that. 
But Jesus said, when you ask your mom or dad for a fish, you would not give a snake. If you ask your father for bread, what father would give a stone instead to their child? That would be cruel. The point we're meant to see here is that even if our earthly fathers understand the basic skills of providing for children, how much more so with God's goodness. This is meant to challenge us to make sure that we understand what it means to be in God's family because many perhaps misunderstand. Many might even say, well, of course God just loves everyone. Isn't everyone in God's family? I mean, God created everyone. Doesn't God love us all as his father, as our father? Doesn't God love every single person? Well, it's true that God created all. But as we're meant to see, Romans 8 tells us that God truly loves his one and only son, Jesus. So it only makes sense for us to understand the love that only comes through his one and only son. That's why Jesus says that all are brothers and mothers and in God's family through him by faith. And we can know that to be true by the gift of his Holy Spirit who comes to comfort and convict to assure us that you're truly one of his. That's the power of knowing Jesus, the power of being in his family together as we eagerly await Jesus to come with his return to richly welcome us into his eternal kingdom forever. Would you join me again this morning in prayer? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to know, even again this morning, we can call you our Father. That we don't deserve the life and the relationships, the many gifts that you give. We don't deserve your word. And yet we understand and recognize that, God, there are times when sons and daughters and husbands and wives, parents, that we fail, that we struggle. But we're so grateful to know that you've sent us your son, Jesus, set us free from guilt, from accusations. You love us enough to tell us that we won't have to be made to suffer forever. This life and this world is short, but eternity is forever. Would you help us to live this out? Would you bless each family and individual to define our lives by your grace and your mercy? So we continue to pray for family members and others who may not know about the gospel good news of Jesus. What a blessing it is to be your church, to be a place where we can gather and serve and love one another, to be a place of encouragement, to lift up our eyes and look to the one true God who's gifted us to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.